French Open episode of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, and joining me across the continent is Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. How are you? Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm, I don't blame you for having to guess because I think sometimes we have no idea where either of us are at at any given moment. So, yes. I don't know. I don't, I don't know where anything is anymore. I've had to, <laughs> had to wake up at like 4 a.m. every day the last 10 days or so, and um, that's not anything like my normal sleep schedule, having to fall asleep around, you know, 7 p.m. at night or something, so. It's pretty rough. I mean, covering these slams from afar is tough in that way, because especially, like, these Europe ones, it just completely destroys your entire day. Oh, yeah. Like, you're not, you're not a part of anybody's regular schedule. (laughs) And I think, and I think the Australian, for me anyway, starts at about 7 p.m. each day and goes till like 8 a.m. is so, so different that it's almost easier. You can just get completely on that wavelength, but there's all these things that are sucking me into normal time when I'm sort of on normal time, but not really. Anyway, yep. anyway that's about as exciting as that gets. But mm-hmm. I know at least that you, for one, are probably relatively happy not to be in Paris, which is not your favorite for the world cities. No, it is not one of my favorite world cities. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's um, obviously it'd be great to be there just because, I mean, you and I both know this, it's just 5,000% better to be at a slam covering it than to be thousands and thousands of miles away and relying on television and internet and all that in order to get information. But um, Especially without transcripts, elbow, elbow. Yeah. Elbow, elbow, with, especially without transcripts. Um, but yeah, no, I'd so... I, you know, I'd like to be there for that, but um, I honestly don't really miss uh, not being in the actual city of Paris. It's just not my deal. Yeah, a lot of a lot of players, I think, probably feel relatively the same as you about Paris right now. Even people who you know might have previously liked Paris, like Serena Williams or <laughs> anybody who's played in front of anybody who's played a French player. I guess basically is what it comes down to because the welcome has not been warm. It's um. I mean, it's almost comical to me, the French crowd, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of observing, not observing them, but just kind of watching the things that they boo, the things that they don't boo, and just kind of the general sense that I get about, you know, they always say, like, you know, you can you can tell so much about a, a, a country or a city's um, just everything about it culturally by, like, the tournament mm-hmm. that takes place there. So Paris, like, I just kind of feel like, you guys are so much happier booing something than cheering something. Yeah. And that is so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and you'd rather just something down than build something up. It's incredible. Exactly. When you do build something like the Apple Tower, you will sort of mock everyone for liking it or everything to your country. Exactly. Because you're better than that. I mean, in fairness to the, no, in fairness to the French. I don't know. <laughs> Real talk with France, real quick. <laughs> they haven't had a slam winner on the men's side since 1983. And they've had about, like, seven different people reach the top ten and not do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's bad. If, that's bad. If they were British or American and had that record, they would be completely, you know, 
crucified. But I think they just kind of get away with it out of sort of, let's not look at ourselves, let's just sneer at others. Well, they, 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 I think that they get away with it. Again, it's it, it really kind of cultural. Um, with Americans, there's kind of a sense of, of drive, the sense that we're supposed to be better, um, that, that like mediocrity or failure is just not an option <laughs> in the States. And so there's a little bit of that. Um, I feel like the Aussies are like, oh, we're doing our thing, like we're just plugging along, you know. Oh, we got this comic guy. You have the Brits. Which they, you know, well, they've sort, they have a sort of resignation about them. Exactly, that's what it is. It's a resignation, and then with the French, I just kind of feel like it's not that they don't care; they just can point to other fingers. It's like the whole Yannick Noah Rafa thing. It's like, oh, we suck at tennis because everybody's doping. Well, that doesn't really make sense. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't quite at all. Yeah, it might make more sense with cycling if not everybody. Yeah. Can that's their sport. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. They, complain, they complain about winners. It's, it's what they do. I mean, really. I mean, that's that's really kind of right. I mean, I guess maybe they have a little bit of the whole, they want the winner that they want, not the winner that they have. Yeah. Mentality. So it's it's a, it's, a, it's actually quite similar, I think, maybe to, to the British the British way. I mean, they're lucky because their number one Frenchman is is a charismatic, impossible to dislike guy in Sangha. But like the way they treat Simon, for example, yeah, I've never really understood why he gets like the raw deal. They're having um, none of that. Yeah, you know, and um, whereas I feel like with the Americans, I do think that we're a little bit more inclined to embrace whoever is number one because we don't really care. We just want people to win. Definitely. <laughs> So, you know, there isn't really, like, a teardown of your number one, but, like, the Brits with Andy Murray and... Well, now that I think about it, I guess the Williams just weren't always, you know, embraced with open arms. Well, that's true. That's a very good point. That's a very good but, point. Um, yeah, on the men's side, I think it pretty much has happened that way. There's been no man who's been really sort of... Um, like, we don't want you. Yeah, exactly. As our, as our top dog or something like that. Yeah, there haven't been that many. I mean, the French really have gone through a lot of people. I was thinking about this the other day when it looked like the French could get out of the tournament. And they still could, because only Sanga's left at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had, you know, Sanga, Monfils, Gasquet, Simon, uh, Clement, maybe was in the top ten barely for a while. Um, you know, Peeling, Grosjean, et cetera, et cetera. All these people who, you know, kind of won a slam, maybe. Just, you know, didn't. And that's their legacy. And they seem just not very bothered by it. So. Yeah. Better than being agitated for no reason, well, here's another thing. Well, no, I guess that's unfair. I so I read I had read some article I think maybe last week about how, like, um, just if you're a former player, you're like automatically going to be like a tennis commentator, like regardless of who you were and what your record was and your slams and things like that. You know, you have kind of random people who are who are tennis commentators, particularly at the slams to do color commentary and stuff. Um, you know, cough Tatiana Golovan cough yeah. or you know, Paula Rima too, I think last year did it. Um for French TV. Santoro's doing it this year, I think. Who? Santoro. Yeah. So, you know, things like that. And I was thinking that like actually in the States we I guess we kind of have that because now that I think about it, I'm like Patrick McEnroe is just Patrick McEnroe and Mary Jo Fernandez, um, you know, aren't exactly 
you know, illustrious Americans on court. True. I, guess. I mean, they were great. I mean, they were good. They just, they weren't champions. So I was going to those, those two cases, I guess, they both sort of have um, their own connection to the sport in different ways. I mean, Clearly. <laughs> I mean, but they obviously, they're both, you know, good with it. They've been doing it for a long time. They're not just parasiting into this one slam. Yeah. And they go out and they do the whole U.S. Open series, you know, let's mm-hmm. go to Cincinnati and Los Angeles and Atlanta. They all do that route. So. And, I, and I do, actually, I mean, and this can segue into a, a brief discussion if you want to about the television coverage and, oh. and commentators and things like that. But sure. I actually, I mean, I do like Mary Jo and, and PMAC as commentators because yeah. they are still in the game. Yeah. No, I mean, you know? we talked about this before, I think, on air, but definitely off air, you know. You sort of trade... Um, you know, complete detachment and maybe objectivity, you know, for a lot of access. The access that these guys get is pretty incredible in tennis compared to what you get from most other sports where the commentator, especially like someone at the NFL, where the commentator's just rotating different games week by week. They never really know anybody. They never have any behind-the-scenes stuff with them. Or somebody like McEnroe or is, you know, working at the development centers of people or Mary Jo has been on a plane to Ukraine with this person. So, I mean, you know. Yeah, you get the situations where there isn't this, like, who the heck is this Varvara Lepchenko? Right. Right, you know, which could very easily happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, very easily happen in, in, in any other, any you know, any other commentary booth. So, um, but there is some of that that comes around the slams. Maybe the slam in particular, um, there are commentators on, this, on the broadcast now um, who come to mind. I probably don't have to name who don't seem to know who the players are nearly as well. True. And yeah, it's different. They add, I mean, I'll just name them, because why not not name them? It's uh, Chris Everett and uh, John McEnroe to a lesser extent. Mostly Chris Everett, I think. You just get the sense that she has, doesn't keep up with the current tour as much as these people who are actually working in the game do, which is fair. But, and I think she does make up for it sometimes with her insights and experience that she has from being a high-level player for so long. But there's a, you know, that's more what you get from other sports, I think, than what you're normally used to. Kind of. So it's a little jarring to hear her sort of work on the fly about who some people are. Yeah, I mean, the I think the problem is that, that she gets into is when she's asked to opine about the current state of the game. Mm-hmm. So when it's about comparing players that they're currently... You know, um, you know, playing like, oh, you know, Angelique Kerber versus um, Sarah Ronnie. Like, what do you think? And she really, I mean, you know, tennis, as I've definitely come to learn, because I'm still, I still consider myself like way behind kind of the learning curve um, in terms of just being able to process all the information because tennis is just like ongoing all the time. And for it's been going on for years, but you can't really just like jump in and just like, know what's going on not at all it takes time to build up that information that knowledge and obviously she's just starting commentating i mean even you were mentioning mcenroe john mcenroe i agree with you like sometimes he'll say something i'm like "Ah, it's just like don't talk about it because it just really undermines your credibility because it makes me it makes me believe that you don't actually pay attention to what's going on in tennis between the slams but he does make up for it because he's been doing this for kind of so long this slam commentary that he can though, like recall certain matches. Yeah, and he is that, like, and he is better. I think at ever at sort of steering away from. He's better at recognizing what he doesn't know. I guess. 
yes. seems that way. He's, he's better at steering towards what he does know and playing yeah. his strength as a commentator. Whereas Everett will start generalizing about which eight women in the field left her best on play historically. And it seems sort of, you know, not necessarily based on anything. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely times where I feel like, um, and not to pick on them, but yeah, particularly like Everett and John McEnroe, where I feel like maybe they saw this player like two set or two games of this player's match randomly at some point and like was totally blown away by one aspect of their game. And so in their head, this that player who is a generally like a journeyman or a mid-level or something like has been elevated in their head as being like one to watch. Yeah, just that happens, just that happens to everybody, though. I mean, that happens to absolutely everybody, but there it, there does need to be a little bit of kind of like the humility to kind of like be like, but maybe I'm wrong, or maybe I don't know. And I think that you know McEnroe is probably better at that of kind of embracing that, like, oh, I'm wrong on that. Oh well, um, what to shows you what I know. Like you know, like McEnroe kind of has a little bit of that self-deprecating style sure. than Everett, who who I think. Um, you know, she's, you know, obviously it makes sense. She's a former, you know, coach and academy person. Like, she's used to being, like, an authority and um, always right sort of thing. So it's it's a little bit different when you're kind of working among, learning to work amongst the team when you're kind of an individual player. <laughs> we should say, as we sound off on the table, that this is our, we're trying to do things quickly because we're all very busy with the slam schedules. This will be an unedited episode where all our thoughts unfiltered. Not that you really, not that we really edit that much on a normal basis. No, I think that sometimes we only edit because, like, I cough or the dogs go off. We might still hear your dogs this episode. That's yeah, thing. you might hear my dogs. Yeah. Um, you might hear me stutter a lot. Um, you might hear me go off on a tangent. And some of the audio might, like, blow out because I start laughing too loud and the microphone gets annoying. But, yes, this is going to be a one-take episode. Yes. So it's very, we're very excited slash nervous about that. Yeah, it's like uh, 30 Rock Live. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Maybe have a little bit different East Coast, West Coast edition. Ooh, I like. I like. One that will have... Uh, did you watch both? I did. East Coast was so much better. East Coast had um, McCartney, right? In the West Coast. Yeah, and East Coast had Kardashian. I was like, oh. And it was like a Kim Kardashian poop joke. It wasn't even, like, worth it. And I think that the problem was that, like, the East Coast version, for those of you who don't know 30 Rock the show on NBC did like a live show and they aired, they did one for West coast and East coast. The problem was that like the East coast, also the, the um, studio audience had already like was so jazzed for the first taping, which was the East coast taping. Mm -hmm. And so all the gags, like the, the audience was hilarious and stuff. And you could kind of tell that by the second time they had to do it all over again. Everybody's like, Oh yeah, there's John Hamm again. I was sort of wondering if they got a fresh audience. I was thinking maybe they might've, Oh, maybe. That would make more sense. But that's a logistically such a pain because you have to, like, flip it. Warm like, that's, like, one more thing you have to worry about, like, when you're taping a live show. Have you been to any, like, live show taping of anything before? Um, tapings? Yeah. Conan. Okay, that, yeah. I've been to, I went to Letterman once. It's just exhausting. They do so much, like, sort of, like, random, like, you know, having you stand in line and wait around places. Yeah. It's a relatively short thing. I don't know. That's something I would rush to do again. That's something kind of cool to do. For SNL, I would like to do it. I've never seen SNL taping. That would be cool. That'd be cool. Although I've heard that this sight lines on it are really bad. Oh, it's horrible. There's, like, there's pillars everywhere. Yeah. Anyway, tennis. <laughs> tennis. Uh, See? 
this is what you get. Which which match of these? I'll try to segue. What yeah. trouble moment would make the best SNL sketch for you? Encore. Oh. Best moment so far. It's just you know most most sketchable in an SNL fun. Anything that's happened. I feel like the French crowd basically is a one, but we've already sort of talked about that. The French crowd is pretty good. I could see like Fred Armisen doing a really like obnoxious like French ca- crowd sort of like cheering thing. Yeah. Um, I think I will go with the Wozniacki umpire oh. argument. Oh, tell us about that. I actually oh. heard the whole thing. I've heard oh. quotes. But. Um, yeah, no, so Caroline Wozniacki obviously had an epic match against Kaya Kanepi um, and lost it. Um, Kanepi was up 6-1 in the first set, and then it was, I believe, 1-1 in the second set. <clears throat> and um, Kanepi hits a forehand, I think, that clips the back of the line, but Wozniacki stops play, obviously. Um, and then, um, gosh, what happens then? Oh, yeah, so Wozniacki stops play, and then the uh, the umpire comes down, takes a look, and actually calls it in, and wa- and so giving Kanepi the game. Mm-hmm. And Woz kind of went ballistic a little bit um, and uh, started, ye- like, not yelling at the umpire. That would be overstating what she does. But she's very tense and, you know, angry for Woz. I mean, her name is Sunshine, so it wasn't ang- it's not rotic. But it was definitely she was pissed, yeah. um, and so she she asked the air, you know she talks to the umpire and she to her it was it was easily out, um, Hawkeye or whatever shot spot showed that it was about six millimeters out so technically based on shot spot Waz was right but the umpire read the mark differently, um, and she asked and she was like how could you be so arrogant and just there. Um, um, let me ask you a question did you go to school where did you go like did you go to school. Um, and which, I mean, the automatic comeback, which everybody came up with on Twitter, was I didn't know that you needed to go to school to see a mark. But, okay. Now, the other one I liked, the comeback I heard to this was, you go to school, Caroline? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've been playing tennis your whole life. But, anyway. But, yeah. So, it was just kind of funny. And then, like, uh, her box yells something at her. And then she calls the supervisor. And it's just this big hubbubaloo. And she, much like in Miami when she got um, ticked off at Noonie, for overruling that call, um, she on match point, she um, she wouldn't let it go. And so in the press conference afterwards, she was just like, you know, there's nothing to argue about. The ball was clearly out. And if a ball's moving five miles an hour, I think umpires should be able to see that. Like, you know, just kind of really snarking on the umpires. Um, but it was just like an odd thing because it was 1-1 in the second set. And Wozniacki ended up winning that set. Yeah. And so, not only that, not only she went up winning, she went down 5-1. And then Kai Kanepi, Kanepi, which has been coming a verb. Yeah. Her, her multitude of performances. Can- canopy. Canopy, right. Folding like a canopy. <laughs> yeah, she was up 6-1-5-1 and managed to almost lose. Not almost lose, but she managed to take it to the third. That's bad. And of all people, she is still in this tournament. <laughs> she could still win the French Open. Yes, she could. I mean, it could happen. But it would be a stretch. Yeah, I think the Wozniacki thing is interesting. It sort of leads to this obvious question that I've heard debated sometimes, and I've actually talked to uh, Chair Empire about before. Is do you think there should be shot spot on play or Hawkeye? I personally don't. Okay, explain. Um, because my understanding of it is that that Hawkeye, the reason I mean, there's obviously there's 
two reasons why Hawkeye isn't used, but the one that uh, most people cite is like, why would you need Hawkeye? You can see the mark. Um, so that's that's one that gets used a lot. But the other one is actually more technical, which is that apparently on clay, Hawkeye is not as accurate as it is on grass or on hard courts. Like it's it's there's a bigger margin of error mm. that kind of statistically unacceptable when it comes to line calling. So if you have Hawkeye say one thing, but the marks is another thing, um, I, I think there's a little bit more concern that the players are going to be like, what the hell? Like not the Wozniacki situation, but the other situation is going to be a little bit more of an issue where a ball is like the umpire and the, you know, or the mark is clearly one way and Hawkeye over, I guess it is the same situation. But, um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I don't think we need Hawkeye. I like the fact that you have to get, you know, Carlos Bernardes out of the chair to jog across the, the, the court to look at a uh, thing. And for the most part, the, the players seem okay with it. Yeah, I think so. I'm just always worried that Lynn Welch is going to, like, sprain her ankle jumping out of that chair. It's I'm telling terrible. you. I know. Well, they, get, they get to those marks fast sometimes. It's had to be Serena going out in the first round to Rosano. There's, there's really no way around that for me. I mean, that didn't see that one coming. Um, thought she was playing really well. Just She was so flat. Um, Rosano played great. Okay. Um, really great. Yeah, so so that was probably the most surprising for me. I think, and we talked about, we had a lost episode we alluded to on Twitter before. We talked about the strain of loss a lot more in that. And I think what yeah. was surprising uh, in that one, which is sort of, you know, not that Serena loses the first round to Rosano, because Rosano is, you know, a very capable former top 20 player. Um, but that, you know, that Serena, like, broke down in tears after losing the second set, which is really uncharacteristic performance. Uh, the mental side splitting more than the physical side, maybe, and all the sort of better comparisons you can make. It was an accelerated version of happened on the last show. Yeah, we, we did spend about 45 minutes yeah. uh, ruminating on the, the state of Serena um, in our lost episode that got uh, muddied uh, due to audio issues. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that the general consensus to the, well, I mean, I'm not going to say that because that's, I guess, kind of presumptuous for me to say, or speak for anybody else, but um, you know, it's, it's an interesting time for Serena right now. I, I would not write her off by the, in the least. Um, I think that, that you really do have to wait how the rest of the year plays out. Um, because, you know, she could turn around at Wimbledon and nobody will remember the French and, and what happened here. And, and, you know, one of the interesting things is kind of for all of the hubbubaloo about surrounding, oh my gosh, Serena lost and oh, is... You know, is it because she's old now, she's mentally weak now, all this sort of stuff? It's like, yeah, but are we really going to throw our hands up in the air and throw her career under a truck on her worst surface? A slam that she hasn't won since 2002, that she's only won once? Um, that she hasn't made past the quarterfinals since, what, 03? It sort of showed how much respect, I guess, there was for her that we were all willing to say, wow, she's playing really well and playing now. Clay, she is the top player on Clay right now. Right. It's not Serena's statement by any stretch. But, no, yeah. You know, she earned that, though, with how well she played all year. And it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't ridiculous to make it a favorite tournament, I don't think. There was no reason for her not to be. I mean, we really didn't have any reason to see this coming. 
No, it's just, I think that it's just really easy to be seduced by Serena when she goes on those like weird, you know, crazy runs, just like it was easy to be seduced by her, you know, last summer. Um, and it's not like she was lucking out in, in winning Charleston or, or winning Madrid or something like that. She looked amazing. Like the level of play was incredible. She just absolutely um, mopped the floor with Azarenka in that final. It was a joke. I mean, it truly, that was when, to me, I was like, oh, you know, I, I think that that's when the red flags, to me, kind of flew for Azarenka, because that was such a beatdown, like a very public beatdown, because everybody was looking forward to that match yeah. for so long, and to have it go down like that, at least, that, yeah, I mean, that that's just, I mean, at least with when she lost to Sharapova in Stuttgart, it was a bad loss as well, but she already had two wins over Sharapova earlier in the year, but... Yeah. Um, so Azarenka went out just as Azarenka went out two and six to a Dominika Chulakova, who she had overcome in a comeback in Miami very epically. Um, and this time just seemed flat. And uh, she's been wearing her skirt all the places, I want to say, and it hasn't worked for her. The sort of swagger just hasn't been there. No. There was no swagger. And, and uh, yeah, I wrote about this earlier this week, but this whole notion, you know, and obviously I talk about it all the time because it's one of the weirdest athlete quotes I've ever heard is, is her saying that confidence is overrated. Um, but she can say that and that's fine. And if that's what she believes and that's fine. But what she looked like through, you know, four matches at the French Open was a player who was lacking in confidence, who knew she didn't have it, whatever it was. And, but, and it's much more difficult because, when you are a player, I mean, Djokovic can probably talk about this. When you are a player that had it, what you you were firing on all cylinders and you were just, it was almost easy what you're doing and you were just in the zone, to then even a small dip below that, it, you can panic. And Djokovic, to his credit, kind of never yeah. has. Serena probably panicked. I've never. Yeah, I think Serena panicked. And I think Azarenka panicked. I think that she. That um, match against Brianti. I don't know if you saw it or not, but that was just when she was on a set in four love and she went for this crazy second serve, which was, I think, could be compared to the Djokovic shot. Um, and it was better. Right. Kind of like if it goes in, it goes right, in. But if it, if if it, it doesn't, down. she was done. I mean, it was, she would have been on a set in five love and Brianti completely collapsed in that match, playing way above herself. But uh, yeah, it was just still, I don't know. There was sort of a, I just had to right this whole tournament. She had I actually talked to somebody in her team during um, the Indian Wells, and she was actually was in some of her player area, and she was going through a stack of clothes that Nike had brought her. That was going to be all the outfits she was wearing all year. And oh, okay. um, I thought I, should, I be like, I thought to myself, like, I need to memorize the stack, like, I tell you what it was going to be, and <laughs> I don't care that much. Um, but there were a lot of not shorts in there. And I was like, wow, she's going to stop wearing shorts after she's, you know, Indian Wells. So she was like 18 and I went shorts at that point. I was like, you're going to stop wearing shorts? Really? And we're like, yeah, well, no, I'm not going to wear shorts always. I'm just going to undefeated in shorts. Yeah, I mean, it's just like I, a weird design thing. Because I, I, I know that they do that, obviously, like a year in advance. Yeah. Like, you know, Nike's designing for no, she, she had her next... US Open dress there at, at Indian Wells. 
Right, right. But it was just kind of, so obviously, like, if Nike's going to design you the baby doll, then Nike designed you the baby doll. But I, I did Nike really design for her a pair of shorts for the Australian Open and then decide that they weren't going to do that for the rest of the year? That seems really not weird. not have the flexibility once the short, once she makes her mark, once her big breakout moment is in these shorts. No, yeah. And they became her thing. She was... Well, maybe the shorts weren't exactly flying off the shelf. Yes, though, but I don't know that... Because not a lot of girls can pull those shorts off. You got to be like a straight up like athlete to pull those shorts off. Otherwise, you look like you have a bubble butt. But uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. So it, it was just an odd tournament. It was an odd cold season in general for Vika. Yeah, odd cold season in general. We'll see how she she's not playing any grass warm up. How she does so at she Wimbledon. Says. She's gonna be relatively under the radar at Wimbledon for now. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of ex- I mean, she did in the semis there last year, but not a whole lot of pressure on her necessarily. The pressure will be on Serena, on Sharapova, on Kvitova, uh, not really on Azarenka. So I don't know how she responds to that. We'll see. Um, yeah, she's an interesting one because um, I haven't been able to kind of figure out, or I, not figure out, but at least in my head, put her into which category. Is she a player who... I think is maybe like Caroline Wozniacki, which is, I need the attention to, like, I want to be talked about going into a tournament. I want to be the favorite. Um, I want to be number one, like that sort of person. Or if she's actually more of like a Stozer-esque kind of like, it's cool if nobody's talking about me. I'll just come out of nowhere. That's actually better for me. I think she's probably more of the former if I had to pin her on something. I think in Australia, she did come in with a relatively decent amount of hype because she had won Sydney, which was a very stacked field, and she won it pretty impressively. Mm-hmm. And then she really had some beat down in the early rounds to sort of get people talking about her. I mean, she absolutely crushed um, Heather Watson and then Casey Galakwa in the first two rounds. And I then think she on swagger. Okay. And I think during the streak, I think she got better as the streak went on. I mean, I think she was at her best probably in Indian Wells, you could say. Totally agree. But basically, anyway, let's just zoom out a little bit from Azarenka. The whole sure. part of the draw. Uh, Courtney, who is going to win the French Open? Uh, You're fine. You're fine. So, the final? Okay, the whole, the whole shebang. So, one of the things I wrote uh, in my tournament preview was that I predicted that the weather was going to be more of an issue than the draw or matchups or anything like that. Um, and sure enough, uh, last week was was quite hot in Paris and, and uh, quite dry. Um, and the weather's taken a turn. Um, and uh, it's super damp. It's it's cold. It's windy. Um, and that changes a lot for me. Um, I think Sharapova looked like... It's, it's like your home, homeland. It's like the Bay Area right now. I know it is. It is. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think earlier, you know, Sharapova just looked to be absolutely unstoppable. Um, and I think that today was the first day that she had to play under like inclement ish weather. Um, and it was ugly, uh, very, very ugly. Um, so I actually, I, I don't know. I kind of like Stozer for this now, or actually I, I kind of like Kvitov for this now. Okay. Um, cause I think that she still has the power to like hit through the court. Um, even in these sorts of conditions. Um, now, if, and now if the windy shows up, then that's a little different, but I think that it's 
it helps her that that she'll she'll play Shvedova instead of Lena, obviously. Okay. Um, yeah, and then and then she'll get obviously a, 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 what will this be a third a third crack at Kvitova, I think. Yeah, a third crack at Kvitova this year. Um, so and I think that she might. Or sorry, uh, Sharapova. Kvitova will play Sharapova. Um, and I think Kavita will actually kind of figure it out this time. But but I think that, again, it, it, the hotter it gets, the more I kind of favor Maria. The colder it gets, the more I, I, I'd say Kavitova. And then I'm not even, I don't know. I, I don't know about Sam. I'm not even sure at this point if I make Sharapova a complete lock against Kanepi because she looked really bad today against Sakaklova. Like, really, really bad. Or more to the point, she made Sakaklova look really, really good, which Sakaklova doesn't look <laughs> Right. So. No, I think these conditions are a real. I, I, I personally, I think they're a real, real issue. I, I think that they kind of equalize the Irani Kerber match as well. The, the quarterfinal, like I actually, when I was writing it up in my head, I thought, oh yeah, this is going to be Kerber all the way. But then I started to think about it a little bit more, and I was like, well, if it's actually really cold, I think Irani's uh, got an edge there. But you use um, a tennis term that we never actually use in tennis. I think the ball is in Kerber's court. Um, I think, I think yeah. basically, and that's the way it was in. Irani's previous matches against Ivanovic and Kuznetsova, she'll yep. let them, you know, destroy. punch themselves yeah. out. And I mean, Kuznetsova, to her credit, never let them any punches. <laughs> but um, Kerber, I think it's going to be up to Kerber. Kerber will be in the driver's seat. And yeah, but Sarah Irani could totally make the Grand Slam semifinal, which would be pretty weird. So good for yep. her. Um, and yeah, so that's the win side. Basically, I agree with you. I think it's going to be Stoser to win it all. Um, just because I think she's the most... I think she's the easiest road to the finals of anybody. So mm-hmm. she's the most high percentage pick. Kvitova's um, looking better. Although Kvitova can just go off the rails at any moment. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, it's so hard because I think, honestly, like in the grand scheme of things, I feel like these days, Kvitova still is like kind of always my pick to win any tournament. I think she's the most talented player in the... Yeah, but but she's just unreliable. So uh, every time I pick her, I'm like, okay, I pick you to win, and you should win, but you don't win. So <laughs> yeah, and I was really really she's surprised just... when she lost to Sharapova in Australia. I did not. See that yeah, agreed. And she played not, I and mean, Sharapova played amazing that match. So we'll see. It should be a fun end of the tournament. Yeah, I think so. I know what you so. get with the WTA. I mean, you get these um, this crazy first two thirds of the tournament where everything's pretty unpredictable and there's a lot of carnage. But I don't think it very re- regularly really leads to the end of the tournament being bad. It's not marquee, but it's, you know, good stuff. I mean, like, in, oh, in, sorry, in 2010, when the field completely blew up, you had semis that were, you know, Sosa, Yankovic, and Skivoni, uh, Dementia, but it was like, wow, this is a huge chance for somebody. And the matches you got in the later rounds were not terrible. Here's the, I mean, I totally, I mean, I 100% agree with you. And I think that the, the last time that I remember, like, a slam being, like, a complete fizzle at the end was was um, French Open, Sveta, Sveta. Okay. Right? Like, like, and that was just more just because it was, it was, I guess it was a marquee match, but the match was just absolutely embarrassing and horrible. And then obviously the one before that was. I was lucky to miss that, actually. I was traveling somewhere and didn't get to see that match. And I yes. heard about it. Like, I don't so, get to see it. 
Right. But, like, that's the last time where there was, like, a slam champion where you're, like, we actually kind of almost actively forget about it. Oh. But, like, for all of the flack that, like, Lee Knock, a bit of a, um, you know, Stowe's or Kim Kleister got last year, they all, like, won slam. Like, nothing was given to them, you know, and, um, and the end rounds were great. I mean, they were totally... You know, Francesca Schiavone, she's a legend because of what she was able to do at, at Roland Garros. She's not a laughing stock. No, and then she, but, people, but people talk about it like as though it's like a joke, and it's not. I don't think it is. I would, I would agree with you for sure. Um, this, this is a very easy segue to the men now, I think. Because they're <laughs> just so different. The men's stock. So different. We have everybody who's left in the final eight is the top 12 seed. And um, basically... The only ones who are outside the top eight are Almagro and Del Potro, who are not exactly shocked to make the quarterfinals of the French, um, either of them. And they both played top eight seeds. We could have, it would have been the first time ever to have the top eight seeds on the quarters um, if uh, Almagro had lost to Kipsarovich and Del Potro had lost to Verdic, both of which are plausible results. So it just says a lot about... And this is how the men sort of roll. I think the first week for the men, outside of some, you know, uh, sort of outside story intrigue, like Isner losing or something, outside that, and the Brian Baker stories and whatnot, all that, outside of those stories, you don't really get a whole lot interesting happening in the first while, but now it sets up for all the big dogs to be left, and you kind of find out more who is the best player than, I guess, who wins the tournament. Yeah, I mean... First week of a slam, you know, especially for the men, is about stories. Mm-hmm. It's about what are what are this, the you know these nobodies that you know they win this one match and it's like they're one day in the sun and, and so especially as a person as a writer like you feel like oh that's great like you know we can write about that because that's you know human interest story almost you know the Brian Bakers, Paul Mitsu, Tommy Haas, um, you know those sorts of players who who make those runs. But second week of a slam, now it's business time. And now it's about, like, okay, who who's going to actually win this thing? And I always find that that's, it's, it's actually, that's what makes it really hard sometimes to write about the ATP, especially in the early rounds, and in particular outside of a slam, where the stakes are obviously a little bit lower. But, you know, if somebody pulls off a huge upset, but, oh, you know who's a good example of this? It's um, Berdich. So Berdich had, a fantastic place. Um, and to me, he, like, if he didn't, if he doesn't get the draw that he got, he would have been the, my dark horse, hands he down. Was in the Murray, he would the, have been bold. Exactly. But no, he got drawn into not just the Fed quarter, which is fine, um, but he, he got Del Potro as well. And I'm like, well, this isn't going to work. Like, so basically, like, you have, in order to win this thing, you'd have to go through Delpo, Fed, Novak, and Rafa, yeah, you're officially, yeah, I was like, you're officially not my dark horse pick anymore. And so because of that, I almost kind of ignore, I didn't, I stopped paying attention to Birdie this entire tournament. Like he had like that five set win over Kevin Anderson and, you know, he was playing pretty well and I was just like, mm, whatever, I don't really care because you're not getting far. I mean, it's- and that's, that's where the frustration is sometimes with the ATP, whereas with the WTA, you almost have to pay attention to everything because you don't know how, th- how stories are going to break. As we said in our little pre-show, what we're going to talk about, Jack, ATP can stand for always totally predictable. 
because yep. you get this then, especially I think it's it's sort of damning for the guys who aren't the guys who are let's say five to hundred. Like they're not beating these people; they just don't beat them. And Ferrer will probably beat Murray. I think this is probably the heavy mm-hmm. favorite in that match actually. But uh, that's a clay thing. That's Murray being hurt and all that. But outside of that, you get people who get these guys dead to rights, and they just don't finish it. I mean, what Yarko Neiman did losing that match. Anymore. It's ridiculous. Yeah. How do you lose yeah. that match when the guy is serving like 60 mile per hour first serve, can barely move, and you just completely collapse? It was. Do you think it's fair the amount of grief that Andy Murray is getting regarding kind of all of his groping and whinging and whatnot in that match? Good question. Um, he definitely was getting it from the French crowds, and I did notice as the match was going on that he was grabbing his back only after points he lost, after he hit winners or. On the point, sure. he wasn't feeling any pain, but as soon as he lost the point, he was sort of like, ah, you know, um, feeling it more. And obviously, there's an adrenaline, you know, psychology part of that that makes it true. I mean, things are going to hurt less when you're winning. I understand how that works. I've played sports. Everybody should know how that works. Anyway. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I don't think that. I think it's right for there to be debate about it, but I don't really second guess it. I'm not somebody to say, oh, this is, you know, as. Agnes Redwans would say, a bad display of I don't think that's right. But I do see why it would great people. But I also think it's completely pathetic for it to throw a match with somebody like Gareth Newman and to be like, wow, well, my opponent was touching his back. So I just, right. what is that? Just finish it off. And I think it was interesting that yesterday, was it only yesterday or a couple, yesterday, the uh, Chibokova-Azarenka match was going on at the same time as Seppi Djokovic. And you knew that Djokovic wasn't losing to Seppi. That just doesn't happen in the modern age. Right. Whereas uh, Chibokova has sort of a history of not being the best closer at all. We still give her more of a chance. It seems like there's less uh, deference on the WTA, I guess. You know, you get the sense that the rest of the guys in ATP are almost um, afraid to beat the top guys and afraid to do that. And maybe that's unfair, but that's the impression they've given. Yeah, I think this goes towards, um, again, I can't remember if I have this conversation with you online or offline, but um, just about, I've always kind of had this, 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 it's not a theory, but uh, this sense that the ATP, the guys, especially guys ranked five through 1,000, are, or five through 100, let's say, um, are kind of, they're okay, they're a little bit more okay with losing. Yeah. The, just, I mean, not that they throw matches, and I'm not saying that, but, like, um, they just, they process it a little bit easier. Mid-match, they're like, oh, it's not my day, and, like, whatever. Whereas the W, yeah, whereas the WTA from 1 to 1,000, they are, like, tooth and nail fighting each other for every single freaking point. Um, and they want it so much, and that's why they choke. You know, like, but I never really question, like, oh, you know, she doesn't believe that she can beat this person. I, I very rarely say that with the WTA because it's never really about that. Whereas with the ATP, I do kind of get that sense a little bit more that some of the players just step on the court and they don't believe that they can win. The only player on the WTA where I feel like has that aura is Serena. I think Serena definitely steps on the court. I think that she automatically wins games. Um, but everyone else, like they, they are just salivating for an opportunity to, to get a crack at Sharapova, to get a crack at Azarenka. You know, to... going this week. I mean, she is yeah. ranked 120 spots below Azarenka. 
And once she got out there and saw how things were going, you saw it, you know, in her that she really did feel like she could do it. And she was close to doing it. And I don't think it wasn't really her or anything that she changed that turned that match around. Um, Steffi probably didn't. I don't think Steffi really folded either. I think that was just the case of Joker just starting way off of his level. But with Neiman yeah. in, on, in that second round match with Murray, and again with Murray in his match against Gasquet, I mean, they just sort of, you know, capitulated. And I think yeah. it goes to sort of what maybe subconsciously what male and female athletes deal with in terms of what's at stake for them, in terms of what their opportunities are, and how more or less they would be tied to results. I mean, you're going to get better, a better life while you're on tour and after your tour life as somebody who sort of hovers in the top 20 as a guy compared to if you're a woman. I mean, uh, you know, right. if they both retire today, uh, here's an example. If Gasquet and Chivolkova, Gasquet will be much more sort of set up for life to work in the French Federation and on TV and whatever. Correct. Even though Sabolkova's had, I think, better slam results. Uh, comparable. Comparable. Both made like two, one semi. Two quarterfinals. Both made one semi. Uh, both a few quarterfinals. Yeah, pretty comparable. He's been top ten. She has been. He's sort of been That's a bigger true. name on the tour just because there was so much high flying coming. Also true. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's definitely true. I just, I just, uh, I don't know. So many times with the men, it just there just seems to kind of get to this point in a match where it turns so dramatically where the, the lower ranked player just cl- clearly is kind of like, oh, you know, no matter what I do, I can't beat him, so I'm not going to kill myself trying to do it. And even, like, the best ones, like, I could see um, Adele Pocho getting that way against Federer in this quarterfinal. Yep. I see that happening. Almagro, I kind of don't think it's up that mindset as much. No, I think Almagro, Almagro has well, and this is why I miss Robin Soderling. I don't miss Robin Soderling for his personality. I don't miss him for, you know, he's not a Petkovich, you know, like where, but I miss him for what he was, which is like the ultimate spoiler. Like you always knew no matter where he was in the draw, he could take out any of those guys. And that was awesome. And that that added intrigue. And he was never scared of any of them. Almagro has a little bit of that. He just doesn't have a big, a big enough game. I want a lot of respect, actually, for Soderling in that moment where a lot of people grew to hate him, where he was mocking Nadal at Wimbledon. That's because <laughs> it was such, like, lack of, of, you know, respect and lack of fear and lack of deference and lack of, oh, I should, you know, be nice to Nadal because he's a great statesman. He's won so much of the game. No, if you're out there on the court, try to win, you know. Play a little dirty if you have to. And it clearly pissed off Nadal. And sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, you do you, Robin Soderling. You just try to win. This is your moment out there. Go try to take it. And yeah, he is the only guy who's beaten Federer on Nadal at the French. Um, except for Nadal beating Federer, obviously, a billion times. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he's, he's lacking. I think Almagro has that capability. Almagro got a crap draw here playing Nadal. I think he could have beaten any of the other three in the court. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah. So once the final four get to each other, I don't think there's any deference. I don't think Murray has any deference uh, to the other guys. He doesn't Correct. always win. I don't think he has that sort of fear of winning that they do. The other people do. And Federer certainly doesn't have it. And Djokovic doesn't have it. And Nadal doesn't have it. Yeah. So I mean, that's when 
That's that's when the competition gets pure. right, and that's when people say, "Oh, this is the greatest era ever." But it's sort of it's being allowed to happen because of this, uh, you know, really honestly crappy resistance they're facing. Yeah, we'll see. It's an it's an odd time in the Senate. I don't think I don't think it's yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? Because it's it's you know you saw the conversation kind of erupt a little bit today on Twitter, you know, in response to Nadal's six two six love six love win over Juan Monaco. And, you know, those people who are WTA fans are like, well, if that were to happen in the WTA, then there would be charges of just an utter lack of quality and depth and all that sort of stuff on the women's tour. But when the guys do it, then it's like, oh, that just goes to show you how amazing Rafa is. And I don't actually think that it's binary. Like, I don't think it's black and white because I think that Rafa is really that good. But there is something to be said about the fact that do you think that people are much more inclined to focus on how good Rafa is and maybe not focus much on kind of this gap, this, you know, this gap between those guys and the rest of the field and how how detrimental it is to the men's game. At least Rafa on play sort of has a real track record of being superhuman. I mean, he once dropped, what was it, like three games to Federer in a French Open final? Something like that? Maybe yep. one, yeah. three in love or something? It was, yeah. yeah, these things happen for it all, and I think he gets a pass. And Serena gets the same thing, too. I think when Serena absolutely blitzes, like, a Wimbledon, when she just shows up and, you know, maybe loses 20 games all tournament, you're like, yeah, that's Serena being, you know, an all-time great. You get that. But other times when it's like Azarenka eating Sharapova the um, like final, you're right. just like, wow, there's not a lot of resistance here for WTA. So I definitely, I see how things get stuck. Yeah, it's kind of like a criticism, it's a, it's a critique that's like heavily biased by how you feel about the person that just laid down the beat down. Right? I mean, like, I mean, with Azarenka, when she did and she kept beating up on Sharapova, it was... The focus really oddly wasn't. It didn't seem like it was really on Vika. It was it was on Maria. Like, what's wrong with yeah. you? <laughs> like, you're better than that. Like, snap out of it. Like, sort of thing. Um, and uh, but yeah, yeah. No, it's an interesting comment. I have to think about it a little bit more. Yeah. Even saying that with uh, you know Roger Federer not really playing that well, playing a former Grand Slam champion in Wilmington, Delta so, I mean, you get these great finals. But then again, at the same time, because we've seen this all before, unless Murray somehow wins, or unless Ferrer somehow wins, which, again, isn't happening, what do we, what's sort of the moral of the story of this, this men's tournament, no matter what happens? Can we really learn anything from, from a Djokovic title, a Federer title, or an Adal title? I think so. Um... I mean, well, I mean, I think that one of those three winning, there's still a narrative that gets propelled forward. There's still like a story or, you know, um, yeah, it, it helps write their story. It, it doesn't sound like cliche, I guess. I mean, there was definitely that time when Rafa was always winning Roland Garros that, no, there really wasn't much that it was really changing. It was Rafa won again. He owned Federer again, and um, he's the king of clay again, and you know, you every single time you were supposed to like find something new, and you know, admittedly, it was all it wasn't always easy. But this time, I think that there are. I mean, obviously, if Novak wins, then you know, it doesn't he kind of 
isn't there doesn't the discussion begin with him being able to capture all four slams and hold them yeah. all um about whether or not like where he fits into the greatest of all time conversation um obviously rafa wins and he's kind of flipped he he officially kind of closes the door on not the Djokovic era like closes the door but at least closes the door on this whole Djokovic is dominant yeah. um you know year and a half and if Federer wins I mean obviously that kind of changes a heck of a whole lot um de- depending on how he does it if he goes through Djokovic and Rafa to win the French Open at 30 years old pretty good it's, it's pretty, pretty good. good you know that might that might finally I think put to rest the whole like oh he can't be goat because Rafa owns him I think if he all he has to do is just beat Rafa once at the French Open Everybody can show. <laughs> I think he's. I don't see that happening at all. No, Lost I don't. Three sets now to the likes of Adrian Unger, Nicolas Mahout, and David Goffin. But Goffin, go future goat David he Goffin. Was fun. That guy was. Fun. He was so fun. And going back to the French people, I watched his. Um, I don't know what I was had against whatever whoever else was playing at this time. But I wound up watching Kubo Goffin for some reason. And the mm-hmm. Belgian crowd was just so excited for him and so into him. I remember tweeting, um, if you know, you have the choice if you're playing in Roland Garros, be Belgian, don't be French, because they will like, they'll be <laughs> totally supportive. And Justine Annan definitely got that. She never got any lukewarm reception from the French crowd. That's a good point. Feisters uh, too actually did pretty well with the French crowd also, um, before she stopped showing up. So yeah, so those are the stories. Who do you think? What do you think will happen actually? Of the last five of the men. Uh, I think that it'll be Novak versus Fed in one semi. I think it'll be Rafa versus David in the other semi. And I think it'll be Rafa beating Novak. Yeah, I think the exact same thing. I yeah. would have given Federer a real shot against Novak if Federer hadn't looked so bad. But Well, I mean, I think that Federer's... I think his poor form is exaggerated a little... Or, yeah, it's exaggerated a little bit, only because like, he did play like three players who he's never played before. So he it took a little while to figure them out and like work, but which is why I think that he'll be perfectly fine tomorrow. Yeah, I think he'll be fine. Or, yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, to me it's, it's a it's a I don't know. People can say that I'm I'm putting too much stock in weather conditions, but I think that in, in those sorts of conditions. Um, and it's projected to rain on sun on Sunday for the final, so keep that in mind. But if it's supposed to rain and it's not going to be hot, then Fed's not going to hit through that court. And when he's been dumped out before, like when he lost to Sodling, um, that's what happened. He, he got busted off the court, a very very wet yeah. court. And I, I will actually pay a little bit of attention to. Um, I'll pay attention to all these matches, to the extent I can. Um, although they are playing being played at the same time as each other quarterfinal round, which is really annoying. Um, the two women's quarterfinals tomorrow both start at 2 p.m. French time, and and yeah. matches are immediately following them. So if you're a big WTA fan, you get you can't really watch both. And if you're a fan, you can't really watch both. So that's sort of stupid, I think. And they could have uh, at least flip-flopped them. They had one ATP and one WTA go for something. I don't know. The whole scheduling thing in France has been awful. Have yes. any problems with darkness? It's beyond in the city. Just get lights. You don't need to play night sessions. Just get lights. Don't have things. Just get lights. I did in my own mind, like for a split second, imagined like tiki torches. Mm-hmm. 
around like Chatri and Long Lawn. I started laughing, but at the same time, I was like, that'd be so cool. At first, I thought they'd be like an announcement, you know, uh, Andre Polino would get on the microphone and say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we would ask you all to please hold up your cell phones to remind Thank you. If you have an iPad, can you please turn it to the maximum brightness? Thank you very much. Download the flashlight app on your phone and do that. <laughs> yeah. So, takeaways? Like, that's just not airing live. Oh, um, no, that's a Wimbledon issue for NBC. I don't know if it's a French issue. No, it, it hasn't been for the French. They've just kind of come in whenever, the, what on whatever action has been okay. live. That's okay. Yeah, so they haven't delayed it. I'm trying to think. I feel like they did, but now that I'm thinking about it, they didn't. Yeah, Wimbledon they definitely have before. Yeah. Yeah, so. I just think that it's so funny that actually, I mean, I think the ESPN and tennis show coverage during the week has been great. Um, you know, they've covered it live. They come in live. You know, they, you know, air from first ball to last ball for the most part. And I just think that it's so weird that when the weekend rolls around and NBC picks up coverage, that it all just gets blown out of the water. That all of a sudden, the one time when you actually have, like, a window and a captive audience, it's like, hey, let's, like, sit here and watch Rafa beat down on some random player rather than, like, take you to a competitive match. Or let's not... You know, I just I just can't stand the way NBC handles the tennis. Also, when they come on, they knock out, they black out all the other streams for other courts. No longer you to pick yep. what you want to see, um, which for us we get spoiled by. Obviously, that's only a recent development in the last you know five years. Um, sure. Yeah, it's just it's totally different. I'm very happy to see it there. I guess they still have the Roland Garros contract for a while. Yeah. At least they will not be part of. What they did with Wimbledon, the East Cape play, semifinals that are going on, just doesn't work. Once it really got it doesn't. It just didn't work at that point. Once you have, I remember one, actually this was an ESPN problem. I remember going during the 2004 French Open, going on ESPN to find out what time the quarterfinals were. Mm-hmm. So I knew they hadn't been on TV yet. So I went to the site to look, and they like the headline on ESPN tennis page was like, Capriati upset Serena or something. I was like, Awesome. <laughs> That's the match I was going to watch. And you tell me the results before you, while you're delaying it. Hopefully it's not yeah. working here. Um, yeah. So, I hopefully we're at that era is soon behind us. Hopefully they learn on NBC. Yep. I mean, they left, they left uh, Kinepi Morosniaki at 5-2 in the third. They were like, okay. Yeah. You're like, and anyway, thanks for joining us. Bye. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> better. I heard that NBC has, or not NBC, the TBC has nine court cameras in the Nine. Nine court cameras? Nine different courts will have, like, will be TV. Nice. That is nice. That is a lot. That's pretty cool. Anything yeah. else to talk about on this French Open edition of the show, Courtney? We answered one about Eurovision, about, um, about Lorraine, about which tennis player related to Lorraine. <laughs> We decided on Mary Bartoli. Yes. She sort of goes to beat of her own drummer. Her hair is often very bedraggled, although not this year because she used hairspray. Um, and she sort of moves around her own. Yeah. Uh, I hear you. Um, here's one question from Curtos07. Hey, Curtis. Dig ya. Um, Given that we're now in slam season, how would you rank the four slams? What's the best and worst thing about you each? You can answer this before. Okay. 
Yeah. Uh, so go, you go. My favorite foreign order are um, Australian is my favorite right now. And then, or actually, no, Australian Wimbledon are about five. I really can't stop doing those crazy points. And then comes the US Open and the French is last. Um, you go first, and then we'll sort of break it down from there. Okay. Um, mine is, is pretty similar, but um, uh, I guess the way that I think about it is if I could only go to one slam for the rest of my life, like which one would it be? Um, so, number one is Wimbledon, um, number two is the Aussie. Number three is the U.S. Open. So we have the same basic top three. Yeah. 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 And, then the, and then the other ones the, at the yeah. end. Um, the yeah. French Open. But, yeah. <laughs> so that's mine. But, uh, but what's the best thing and the worst thing about each event? Uh, best thing about Wimbledon for me is just the sort of overall, I don't know, steeped in Ivy traditionness of it and just everything super well run. And I like watching grass tennis a lot, you know, to the point. Um, and yeah, I think the, I like the all white, I like the, you know, balcony where people go and wave to the peasants when they win the titles, I think it's awesome. <laughs> um, not to like Wimbledon, um, the NBC coverage, and that's about it. I don't have much time to like Wimbledon. Okay. Uh, I guess, uh, I'll, we shall alternate. So, the best thing for me about Wimbledon is yeah, it, it's the tradition, um, and it, it's if you've ever been to Wimbledon, that changes things a lot mm-hmm. because there's just um, there's a peacefulness about Wimbledon as you're walking around. Yeah, that that is just I don't know to me it's just uh, without sounding cheesy, it's almost like romantic, like uh, not in like a lovey-dovey way, but just like um, it's just it's nice, it's just peaceful, and you can just. If you have a grounds pass for whatever day, and, and you're, you don't really feel compelled to go to, like, to see what you're missing out on center court or court one, because the grounds are just pleasant, and and you can go and, and all grass tournaments. Like you're walking around the car. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Eastbourne's that way. Yeah. You know, Birmingham's that way. Um, so that's quite nice, and and yeah, just the kind of the the sound. Obviously, you don't hear a sneaker squeaking and echoing of, of the ball or anything like that so it's quite nice it's it's um it's unique in that way so i i do like that um and then worst thing about wimbledon is probably just the cost of everything it can be a pain in the ass to get in <laughs> yes obviously yeah i mean i i've queued up and done that whole thing so you know it, it was fine but oh the other awesome thing about wimbledon is that you can bring in alcohol which is huge and you can bring in, which I was trying to explain to like my British friends, like for Americans, that's that's like a really unique thing because like we can like you know we can never bring in like liquids generally into a sporting event, um, and yeah, sometimes like I think like yeah you can kind of bring in food, but people don't really they just tailgate outside. So just the whole concept of like packing a picnic and going to Wimbledon is like amazing. Uh, why don't you go first with the Aussie? Okay, uh, the Aussie. Um, there's like, I can't think, well, first of all, the, the two main court, well, no, sorry, because Hisense sucks, but like, I pretend that Hisense doesn't exist, but I don't think that there is a better center court, like just for viewing than Rod Laver Arena. Mm -hmm. Like I, I love that court, um, just because it's so intimate. It's so small. 
it's like the antithesis of, of ash. Um, it's always full, very rarely, you know, empty. People who have labor tickets, even, even at the bottom in the, the little corporate seats. So I do like that. Um, and yeah, the Aussie, I mean, it's the happy slam. It's, it's, just, um, it's easy. And and it's right in the middle of Melbourne, which makes it so so easy to like get to just logistically. In labor, I uh, really feel like you get like the class division. You get it, uh, Chatrier or Ash. Yeah, you get you know you get the flag. Yeah, exactly. There's no division of like corporate people versus the plebes. Yeah. It's just everyone. There's also one thing I realized when I was trying to figure out why labor was so great. There's no like court level seats. Like the first row, on all sides is. Right. Equidistant from the court. It's like about, you know, seven feet off or something. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. I guess if they use it also as like a swimming venue or something ridiculous. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. So, so I love labor. Um, I think the worst thing is the heat. That's fair. <laughs> that's all. I mean, because, I mean, the grounds are, I mean, the grounds aren't nice. I mean, they're better than the U.S. Open. Yeah. Um, and they're perfectly fine. I mean, but... And you can get, like, pretty good access, like, you know, on the outer courts, like, sitting close and obviously Margaret Court Arena as well. Um, but it's so hot sometimes, and the sun is just so, so hot in Australia. It used to be that, long in Australia, too, is that thing. Not, yeah. I mean, like, not, like, day, like, daylight, just, like, play can go on forever. That is yes. someone who was lucky enough to go, and I do mean sincerely lucky enough to go to every session last time when we were in mm-hmm. January. I mean, just, like, it's exhausting. It goes till, like, 2 a.m. on the regular there. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. I mean, basically, I'm yeah. just going to screw you up. Either through flying there or trying to watch on TV. So for, for Americans, that is a little bit. Yeah. Uh, U.S. Open next. Um, I can go. Um, I like it because it's close and it's America's slam. And it has sort of a finality to it. I mean, you feel like players really do give their all for the U.S. Open, and most people come in at their best, more or less, because it is the last draw. And, you know, I don't get the sense people are ever holding anything back. Not that you get that much in most lands. Maybe a little bit from Americans and the French or something. But, um, yeah, that's the bad thing that I can think of. Like, yeah, more reason not to the U.S. Open, actually. So, what do you like about the U.S. Open? Um, I like the grandstand court. Mm-hmm. I think Grandstand is an awesome court. It's a great court three. Um, um, so I do like the food. Um, I think that the U.S. Open has, contrary to what John Wertheim said today on Tennis Channel, yeah, I uh, think that the U.S. Open, yeah, I think the U.S. Open has the best food of all I've, the stands. I've, I've, heard, I've heard you complain. I've ne- the French is the one I've never been to. Um, yeah. And I've heard you complain a lot about the food at the French Open. I've seen several things this year about how great the food is at the French Open. But the food that they're showing is not the food that, like, if you're a fan, you're eating. Like, it's the food, because that stuff is, like, the fancy stuff. Like, for example, at the U.S. Open, you don't go to the restaurants that are on site. Like, you're going to the food court. Right. Like, I'm speaking of, of, like, you know, a total person of the people. You're there to see tennis. Yeah, I'm there to see tennis. I'm not there to, like, have, like, you know, yeah, like a, a fancy meal. So... Yeah, so the food court stuff at the U.S. Open, it's tasty. It's totally bad for you. It's very typical kind of American sporting fare. But, like, the Indian restaurant's good. And, yeah, the chicken tenders, the burgers are okay. Um, there's this weird thing with, like, Chris, Co- 
crisp cut fries that they put like barbecue brisket on top of. <laughs> That's like really good. Um, you'll want to take a nap afterwards, but it's like good. But anyways, like as one who's just, I'm just food of the people. I can appreciate high-minded food, but if I want an actual meal, I'm definitely not looking for it on the grounds of a slam. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think the food at the U.S. Open is really good. Um, Part of why what I don't, stands are so empty in Paris is people in the in the lower bowl is all these fancy aristocrat people in Paris who are all busy, you know, their gastronomy or whatever. Yeah. Which is just like, I guess, but yeah, the point is like, if I'm hungry, I got to get something to eat so that I'm not hungry anymore so that I can go watch the tennis, which means that it's stuff that I'm eating on the go. And at the French Open, the baguettes are gross because the the, the, um, bread is stale, like you'll totally chip your tooth. Mm -hmm. Um, And all the other food is like not good. And hello, French Open, non-alcoholic beer. So that's all you need to know about that. Do they serve wine at least? You know, I never really looked. I think they must. I mean, they do at some of the bars. They have, like, wine and, like, Veuve Coco and, like, stuff like that. But, um, but like, at the food, again, in the food courts, and, you know, obviously you're there, you just grab a glass of uh, a, a pint. Um, it's, like, mostly non-alcoholic beer, which is really frustrating. Um, and the Aussie open food is great at all. Um, and Wimbledon's okay. It's not great, but it's also expensive. So... Anyways, um, but the thing that I don't like about the U.S. Open, um, I don't like how it just takes forever to get out there on the subway. Um, And I hate Ash. Ash is awful. Ash is really, really bad. Don't like it. And that whole, like, ground like, collapsing into the swampy underwater table nonsense is going on there. Courts are bubbling up now two years in a row. This has happened. Some degrees. I think it happened, happened most dramatically last year, but I think it also happened on Grandstand. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is just to start over. I think um, I would be fine with it not being played at Flushing Meadows. If you want to move somewhere else in the near That would be cool with me. Put it in, I don't know, Park Slope or something. <laughs> the hipster open. Exactly. You would enjoy that. Why not? I would go to that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So that and it's just really, really crowded, and it's really hot, and it just feels like a, a concrete jungle. Like there's just so little shade there. Some institutional, um, I don't know, removal of shade that really bugs me out there. And, hot. and pale. And then the French, we've sort of talked about the French much already, but it's crowded. From what I hear, you've been there. You talk about the French. Um, yeah, just being, I mean, the, I will say the French is still kind of my favorite to watch on television, just because I really do like clay tennis and I like how it sounds and um, all that. But um, the ground, but having gone there, I think that's really when it solidified, like the French went from like one of my number one, like I have to go to the French Open before I die and it like dropped to the fourth slot. Um, but yeah, the grounds are, are just ridiculously crowded and the way that they're laid out where it's very narrow, there's, it's really difficult to just walk from court to court to see what you want to see. Um, the food isn't all that great. Um, I still, you know, like court two is my favorite court at the French open, which is like this cool court that has like a walkway that's is above the court. So you stand on the and like down right on top of the court. Really cool. Like Monaco and Ronald split on, right? 
Yes. That one looks pretty cool. It's great. The, the, it's always full. Um, the um, crowd is always great. Um, so that's my favorite court. I think the bull ring is completely overrated because I've never been in there when it's full. Um, Chatre is fine. Long Long's fine. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing about the French Open is it's, it's um, you have to work. Like, it, it's a pain to go to the French Open. Like, it's in a part of the city that's kind of a little bit difficult to get to on the metro and to get there. And then you get in and, you know, the food's not really all that great. And, you know, the outside courts are all basically kind of shielded. So you can't really walk and see what's going on on an outside court. And at least last year when I was there, they didn't have scoreboards to tell you if you were walking on the main like little boulevard, who was playing there and what the score was. So if you had your order of play, then obviously you could match it up and you could be like, oh, that's court 16 and you could read it. But if, yeah, but if you didn't and you were just kind of whatever, you'd have to stand in line until the change, obviously, and then get in on the changeover and then look, and you're like, oh, no, this is not the match that I wanted, and leave. And that's like 20, 25 minutes of your time yeah. of standing there. So it's just, I don't know, I find it very not user-friendly. So those are all our thoughts on that. Yeah. It's a good slam with topic. And we'll leave you with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you all for listening. Next time we join you, there will probably be a new French Open champion um, on the men's women's side. There might be the same old champion on the men's side more than likely, but it will be a new one on the women's side. And it will be a new era of tennis for all to enjoy. Exactly. Racing into Wimbledon. And you will be heading over, actually. You're going right after the French, right? To Birmingham? Yeah. I leave Monday after the final. Very cool. So we'll have to figure this out. We will. We will. But, uh, but uh, I should have internet the entire time that I'm there for the most part, so things will be okay. We trust all trusty British telecom. Exactly. Thank you all for joining us again on this one-take extravaganza of an episode. Fingers crossed this came out. Absolutely. And we will talk to you later. Bye, guys. Au revoir.